You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be a little different. We're going to go back up into tree frog territory. And joining me tonight is my guest, Jay Summers. Many of you may recognize Jay from his YouTube interviews with Triple B TV and some of his lectures at uh, Herpeton. Jay's going to share some of his experience with members of the Phylomedusa genus, which include, you know, by some of the common names, leaf frogs, monkey frogs, waxies, etc., depending on the species. And we're going to discuss some of Jay's experiences with them, as well as touch on some of his experiences with some of the more rare and uncommon species in the hobby, which is really what Jay's comfort zone is. That's really where he likes to deal with, is, uh, is with species that are kind of out of the ordinary. And then we're going to kind of talk about some things that are going on with Sandfire, and finally we're going to kind of end up talking about proper supplementation and what some of Jay's thoughts are with that. So for starters, Jay, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Um, why don't you start at the beginning? Tell us your story. Now, you've been in the hobby a long time. How did you first get involved with amphibians and, and, and herps in general, and what led you to where you are today? Uh, well, I think just my, you know, fundamental interest in animals and the accessibility of reptiles and amphibians uh, in my youth, uh, just by proximity sake. And amphibians were always the easier ones to find because, you know, you go to the water and they're there. You're not having to spend massive amounts of time trekking vast amounts of real estate, flipping rocks and things of that nature. And it was just a lot easier as, as a young child, uh, you know, being around water for other recreational activities. It's not like I had somebody driving me out to the plains of Western Kansas, uh, you know, when I was eight years old to go look for, you know, milk snakes and things like that. So uh, I wasn't able to do that till I got older and could drive. But uh, it's just a fascination with amphibians in general. And then what I was able to uh, be exposed to at local pet stores, you know, back, you know, I'm 47 years old. So, you know, 38, 40, almost 40 years ago, the most people's experiences back then with, uh, you know, exposure to reptiles and amphibians for a lot of people was at their local pet store. And growing up in Kansas City, I was just lucky uh, with the fact that we had a number of pet stores that had pretty interesting reptile selection. And, you know, the Midwest was a hotbed uh, for reptile and amphibian breeders. Well, reptile breeders, mostly colubrid breeders. And, uh, you know, there were some people that come to mind that, you know, like one guy named Mike Chambers, uh, who owned pretty much an almost exclusive reptile store which was crazy back then. And uh, he would drive down to Florida and go through all the wholesalers and drive back with all these insane things. Like I saw my very first uh, live mantella at his shop. I saw my first leaf tailed geckos at his shop, you know, as a teenager. So that did a lot. And, uh, you know, with Vivarium magazine coming out and, you know, the old reptiles and amphibians magazine, the little one with the yellow classified in the middle, uh, you know, and everybody was a member of like the Chicago Herpetological Society, you know, so it was just a fascination with the animals themselves. And then, you know, I, I do keep snakes and I've kept snakes my entire life, but I've never been a snake keeper, you know, like the type of guy that only wants to keep, you know, rack systems full of snakes. I always thought that, uh, 
that was an uninspiring and demotivating way to keep reptiles and amphibians. And it seems more like a job uh, than it did, you know, the, having the ability to enjoy the animals. I mean, you can't even see them until you open them up to feed them or clean them. Uh, so I just always found, uh, you know, lizards and amphibians to be more interesting animals. And uh, I've, I've just always had a thing for tree frogs and other types of frogs um, more than I did for, say, like dart frogs. I just was never bit by the dart frog bug, even though I've bred, you know, quite a few species. They just never really, like, did it for me. Uh, I could look at a sleeping tree frog for hours, and I can look for at a dart frog for about five minutes before I lose interest. It's just kind of a weird thing. Hey, to each his own. No. <laughs> right. Hey, no, and that's 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 it's a necessity in the hobby. Like we can't be monolithic. Uh, you know, and it's not that I don't appreciate dart frogs. I do. Uh, like, I mean, I do keep Benedicta and uh, Vanzellini, but I mean, that's that, that's the extent. I've always been more of a like Reticulatus is always going to be my favorite dart frog, without question. I don't know why. It's just a preference thing, you know. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because when I was young, I mean, you and I are kind of close in age, but I remember when dart frogs had first kind of crept into the hobby, at least for me, yeah. around like the, the early to mid-90s, to me, that was like the yeah. holy grail. I, I was completely at awe because I'd only seen dart frogs in National Geographic and, and a lot of nature magazines. Mm -hmm. So when they came out, I was, I mean, I didn't get involved with them until much later, until the early 2000s, but... It was it was incredible. Um, for me, it was just that I had already had the bug, but I totally understand what you mean about being dr drawn to different species for different reasons. Like, I mean, I, I totally identify with the snake thing because I've always kept snakes, but they're not the focus of my. Yeah, they're not the focus of my you know my whole operation. I guess mm -hmm. you could call it. Now it's interesting yeah. talking about the you know the old days in like the mom and pop pet shops, the staples at the time were very, very different than where they are now. And it's interesting how many, <laughs> yeah. yeah, how many of the staple species are just gone. It was a death sentence back then for a lot of things because things shouldn't have been come in, you know, like, well, it's funny because like just kind of sticking with the dark frog thing for a second. I mean, I, I viscerally remember seeing, you know, my first dark frogs in pet stores. And, you know, we're talking about, uh, well, Tinctorius used to come in, um, you know, with fish shipments back in the day. And some of the other frogs would come in the same way. But I remember Reticulatus, for example, being $20 wholesale. And I remember years, I mean, it would have had to have been like 1990 or 91. I had what is now called uh, uh, Sylvaticum or Sylvatica or whatever. They keep taxonomically changing this stuff. But, you know, back then it was called Histrionicus. Um, which of course that whole, you know, complex of, of frogs has been blown up with and split off into all these new species. But back then that's, that's what it was. And uh, of course, you know, we'd get them in and nobody knew how to take care of them really. Not those. I mean, people were having some success with leucomalus and, and, you know, azurius and all that other stuff, but not, not things like wild caught, egg obligate star frogs, you know, I mean, back then people were making, <laughs> like mixing eggs and cottage cheese together and trying to feed it to tadpoles, you know, like chicken eggs. And, uh, you know, for all these egg obligate feeders. And so, 
you know, then, you know, look at the staples. There was no such thing as a veiled chameleon. It didn't exist in captivity. And what was the what was the pet store staple was a Senegal chameleon, which which was, you know, inevitably going to die uh, if they weren't already dying when they arrived at the pet store. Uh, they had subcutaneous nematodes and they were just uh, a species that should have never been brought in. And a lot of these animals, the, the pet stores didn't know that much. And if they got a kid in there that knew about reptiles or amphibians or thought they did, you know, they'd get free reign to order these things. And a lot of times they would waste the pet store owner's money. And then after a few years, they quit that. And then you started to see some variety, uh, you know, vanish there. But yeah, I mean, that's just that. But the sheer number, if you think about the early 90s and the late 80s, but really, I think the boom really started about 94, 95, you know, somewhere in that area. And there were so many importers and wholesalers in this country. Like, I can think of at least 25 or 30 that are gone from international dragon breeders, California reptile, LA reptile, you know, UHN, all these places in Florida, they're all gone now. But also, you think there were just an endless supply of countries that were exporting. I mean, Peru was exporting and, you know, a couple of other South America, I mean, Paraguay, which we can talk about with the uh, waxy monkeys, you know, like there was a lot of countries that were exporting back then. And now there's not. There are very few countries that are commercially allowing exports these days. And it's been that way for a while. Uh, East Africa shut down. A lot of countries in South America that used to export are done. I mean, you've got Nicaragua and Suriname. And that's pretty much all that comes in with any real consistency uh, outside of some of the stuff that like Mark Pepper does and things of that nature, but uh, and some of the dart frog community. But uh, and then you look at the rest of the globe. And I mean, Egypt doesn't come in every single week like it used to. Madagascar was never ending with its exports. And so. And because people didn't, you know, they kept the prices very low and considered these animals like a throwaway species. Like, why would you bother breeding them except for the love and the passion and joy of breeding them? And then you couldn't sell the animals because the imports were so cheap. And so, and now looking back, you're like, man, why didn't somebody do breed these and breed these and breed these? Because they're gone. I mean, gone. I mean, Pakistan shut down years ago. Uh, there's, there's so many species lost because of that, without question. It was kind of like the Wild West. I mean, I remember the, the yeah. I, I worked at a local store back then, which is now no longer in business. They were a small chain here in the in the New York area. But we used to get lists every so often. And my boss, who was more of a, a she was a small mammal type of person. She was uh, mostly mm-hmm. to rabbits. But every so often she would let me and my friend look at the list and she would say, well, what do you guys want to order? And I remember looking at this list and I was like, this is crazy. I was like, I, I don't yeah. even know what half this stuff like, is. Like a Bible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of those lists were enormously long. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the younger people who were in the hobby now don't realize the extent that it was going back into the late eighties and early nineties. And then even before that, like in the sixties and seventies, I mean, you could pretty much yeah. do whatever you wanted because nothing was nothing was regulated at the time. Right. As far as the hobby staples then and and now. I mean, as the industry has kind of become more streamlined, 
big box stores have become involved and whatnot. There's become more mm-hmm. like hobby staples now are, are different. They're generally, you know, easy to keep, visually appealing, and they're easy to reproduce and sell. Now, the hobby staples that you and I were kind of used to when we were young included like a, a lot of newts, green, mm-hmm. green iguanas were were the default yeah. reptile, boa constrictors mm-hmm. were the default snake. Yeah, or berm. <laughs> but, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago, you wouldn't walk into a pet store and not see a Burmese python. Like every pet store I ever saw back then had berms. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And ball pythons were almost impossible to keep alive in captivity. That's true. Yeah. Notoriously difficult. But what attracted you to some of the more unknown, like uncommon species? Like what, what drew you towards that? Uh, well, I like different animals for different reasons. And, you know, I have a massive collection of different species. Um, you know, initially, uh, you know, I, I was, I can remember very significant parts of my, uh, evolution as a reptile keeper, you know? Um, I mean, I've done it all. I've had seven foot water monitors that were like a dog, you know, I've had large snakes when I was younger and, I uh, kept a lot of colubrids just growing up where I did uh, in the tricolored uh, king snake and milk snake phase of the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, and I was surrounded by all the guys that were in the books. I mean, uh, Dave Breidenbach and Don Soderberg and Roy Engeldorf and all these guys that were, you know, literally in the book. And so that was just what was the, the hot thing. And that's what you saw and that was available. But I remember one day at about the age of 17. And I had, you know, built up a pretty good collection of, of, you know, moderately expensive colubrids at the time. I mean, Nablokai was a, you know, $1,500 a pair snake. And I was just looking at these rack systems and I was like, yeah, you know, this is, I'm just not really into this that much. It's, it's not enjoyable. And it seems like a job. And I just sold all my snakes. And I did keep my emerald tree boas. That's always been uh, probably my favorite snake and probably always will be. Um, and it's really the only species of snake that I've kept consistently for 30 years and never been without. But, uh, I remember at the time I was 17 and you could not find a red-eyed tree frog anywhere. Like they didn't exist. There was only a couple of them in zoos in the United States. I remember Lowry Zoo had one and I think Oklahoma City Zoo had one. And, you know, there were a few people that had them, but not too many. And at 17, I took my snake money and I bought a group of wild caught red eyes. And three or four months later, uh, I bred them by accident. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And, uh, you know, I remember they were breeding and laying their eggs on snake plants, Sanzibaria. And, you know, I produced like 400 babies at the time. And I sold them all for, I don't remember, they were probably $35 a piece. And I had a lot of money. Uh, But I'd always had interesting geckos and, you know, geckos and obscure lizards, you know, rare and old stuff like that. And uh, obscure amphibians have always been my, kind of my area of interest, uh, or at least my main area. But I always had a fascination with newts and salamanders. And I am one of those people that's just not really satisfied with what people spoon feed me. 
So I'm not willing to just sit around and see what becomes available. I, I started reading books in scientific journals at a young age, and I taught myself how to navigate the terminology in scientific journals and to understand. And I taught myself uh, scalation anatomy and things of that nature. And so I just started researching other things, and then I'd research regions, and I'd, I'd you know, find species, uh, not that I was looking for, I was introducing myself to them by doing all this studying, and I had this uh, insatiable appetite for information. So I would see something, and I would basically want it, and some things just didn't interest me, and some things do. Um, and the things that I was really interested in and wanted to try to keep, I tried to figure out how to find them. And I got in touch with people that could help me and started going to Europe. Even at a young age, I was communicating with people in Europe. And, you know, I, I, I've just always had a fascination with, you know, a lot of the animals I keep are animals that a lot of people like. They have attributes like waxy monkey frogs, which is going to be a, like the focus of, of this today. But um, I've always also liked species that other people don't really give attention to uh, because they're either like you look at geckos, right? <clears throat> I'll give you a good example, like an analogy. Everybody back in the day was all about knobtail geckos, just knobtails, knobtails, knobtails. That's all anybody wanted. And while I kept knobtails, you know, in the 90s, early 90s, um, I've always been more interested in animals like in the genus Hemidactylus, which people call house geckos, but they don't really know the genus that well. Um, so, you know, I'm more of the type of guy that likes, if I was a killifish breeder, I would be the guy that would travel to some, you know, killy, some little puddle in the middle of nowhere in some pasture in Africa to go find some ugly brown little fish that only three people in the world would really appreciate. And that's kind of like the way I do things with animals. But uh, I go for behaviors uh, to an extent, and I go for physical characteristics that I find interesting. So uh, it's just a, a preference thing for me. That kind of leads into my next question. You had mentioned journals and what I really wanted to know is how do you go about getting information on species that so few people work with? Well, a lot of the species I've kept over the years, nobody's ever kept them before. So, I mean, I have species that I've obtained over the years, even by accident, that there wasn't even a known photograph of them. Uh, some things that are, uh, you know, fairly common now or weren't. I mean, yeah, look at crested geckos. I mean, crested geckos were extinct. Nobody, they, they were thought to be extinct for decades. And now they're in every pet store you can think of. Uh, and I mean, I, I can tell you the history of how that all happened because I know the two guys in Germany that went and collected them. Uh, and so, but so a lot of these things, uh, it's, it's just building up a knowledge base over the years that you can kind of pull off of. Like, I remember when uh, the very first, uh, I was always the hardcore gecko guy. Um, like, at my peak, I had, like, over 90 genera and, like, 280 species of gecko at one time in my collection. And I remember when the first uh, uh, 
homophilus fasciata came in, the banded, uh, oh, well, I don't know what you would call them as a common name, um, but nobody knew if it worked. And it, it took a little bit of research by going from what country they came from and a couple of people, we kind of figured it out. But we had an idea of what they were, but we weren't positive. I mean, they're clearly a, a homophilus, but, you know, they could have been a, an undescribed species. And so, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff has happened over the years with the hobby. And um, journals, if you know how to read a journal and you can familiarize yourself with the terminology and the, the format of, of a published article in a journal, it will teach you more than any book that you will ever pick up off of the shelf. And I mean, we have some great books now, uh, some, some like all the like, Chimera or Chimera uh, editions. Uh, those are fantastic books, but you're gonna gain far more knowledge off of books that are more geared towards the natural history of animals and regions. Uh, than you are by picking up a book written specifically about how to breed an animal in captivity. Um, and But knowing how to navigate that stuff, sometimes it just helps to find someone that can mentor you and, and teach you, but they're an invaluable resource. So, you know, that that's that's where journals come in, come into play. You start looking at gut contents and you look, there's almost every article in every, any journal ever published about wild uh, reptiles and amphibians, which is six of those since that's what we deal with, uh, they're going to have uh, some mention of the habits and, you know, there's natural history information, there's uh, information about their habits, which is basically observations of, of how they live. There might be, if there's a microhabitat, they might dip into that stuff. Uh, very rarely are there ever color photographs, it just almost doesn't exist, and in fact, in most uh, descriptions of a species, when they're formally described as science, they don't have, usually don't have mention of color. And the reason why is because in a preserved specimen in a jar in a museum, you can't go by color because they often lose their color, you know, over time. So, and that's one reason why they don't really mention color. If, if they do, it's not, a, not the main focus of uh, the description of the animal in the, in the journal entry. But finding, finding access to journals is, is not the easiest thing in the world. You have to subscribe to things like it used to be that you would be a member of Topia uh, and you'd get, you would get, or uh, the, 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 it's the Herpetological Ethiological Association, or there was like a journal of herpetology and herpetologica and these other, uh, but now there's journals all over the place. You know, you can, you know, you can access a lot of that stuff on the internet now that you, that you couldn't back in the day. Um, college university libraries. Um, most guys at universities, even if you're not a student, if you approach someone in a natural history museum uh, and you explain your interest, a lot of those guys are so happy to share their their knowledge and, and even help you out. And you go to these libraries and most of those journals are there. I think the journals are definitely one of the more underrepresented sources of information. I, I subscribe to a couple over the years. And the nice thing about journals that people don't necessarily realize is that the information's current. It's not mm -hmm. the same as reading a book that might have been published, you know, 10 or 20 years ago where our understanding of a certain species or a certain group of species ha has changed. So, and especially if you really want to find out like, you know, like the breeding habits of a, of a particular species in a particular part of the world, 
There's lots of papers on stuff like that, but you're right. You have to really, really dig to try and find it. My crusade, so to speak, is I, I don't like bad information and I don't like bad information right. that's being parroted by someone yeah. who thinks that it's good information. So mm-hmm. it's, it is refreshing to know that at least there are some people, I really shouldn't say some, there's more people because I do interact with, with a few people here and there, but the role that journal articles have as opposed to books that might be old, out of date, et cetera, it, it's, it's becoming right. more prevalent amongst hobbyists, which is nice because to me that lends the hobby a greater sense of credibility because now rather than just being perceived as just, you know, some dude who likes to keep animals in a box, at least now you have right. some understanding of the natural history and what makes that species unique. And to me, that, that, that just represents the hobby better. I agree. And, you know, getting out in nature, even if it's local, even if you're keeping like exotic frogs or lizards, Getting out in nature locally to look for reptiles uh, will teach you a lot. And a lot of people don't do that in the hobby nowadays. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, when you observe a species in the wild. And the, the funny thing is, this is always what got me. Look at a field guide, like the, the Audubon field guide to reptiles and amphibians. Now, you look in the field guide and you see that picture. And then you see this animal that looks absolutely nothing <laughs> like it does in the picture. Yeah, Right. And it's so, but it's so amazing because you get to see it in real life and you realize, okay, well, there's, there's some natural variation. It doesn't look the way it does on page 997 in this little tiny two by two photograph. Right. Well, that's where your, your common sense has to play in a little bit. And you have to learn, you have to learn how to like figure out what's good information, what's not good information and kind of come to your own uh, idea of, of, of certain things. And so, uh, and that's the issue with um, a lot of the information. And it's one of the things I like, not that scientific journals and you know, stuff like that, they're often erroneous uh, as well, but generally speaking, um, when you read a journal, uh, you're writing something that is written by someone that doesn't have like a bias. You know, there, there are, there's some ego involved nowadays in the taxonomic and phylogenetic communities, some of these things, but you know, in a competition for resources like grant money and, you know, tenure and all of that stuff. But uh, for the most part, that information is just like, you know, the black and white, like nuts and bolts, no fluff, just straight information. And, uh, you know, if you have journals and you have a, a good idea of geography and you study weather patterns and things of that nature, you're going to learn it way more than you'll learn in uh, an article from Reptiles Magazine or, you know, one of the books that's published that you can buy, you know, at pet stores about different geckos or whatever, you know. Yeah, I was always kind of frustrated with some of the information that was available that really didn't get into too much detail. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak disparagingly of, of reptiles magazine, but sure. I, I did going back quite a few years. My, my original background was in, was in language and I did a lot of copy editing for a couple of different, mm-hmm. different jobs. And, you know, you, you, you kind of condense everything down to the, the, 
the basic points that people are going to want to read quickly. And I find that a lot of the magazines kind of condense that information so much that you lose a lot of that important detail that's going to help you anyway. Right. Well, I, again, I, like you, I don't want to just, I mean, I've read reptile. I haven't looked at one in years. I don't even know if they're still publishing, but you know, back in the day they tried and then they got sold and then, you know, they got sold again and bow tie bottom and then this company bottom. And, but I just straight told them, like, I won't write articles for you. I said, no offense, but, you know, Reptiles Magazine to me was always like basically highlights for children, but the reptile version of it. <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, I mean, and I mean, the editor was not too pleased, but I just said, I said, if I ever write an article for Reptiles Magazine, I have full editorial control. That's no stock photos, you know, this, that, and the other thing, just because, uh, as someone who's been doing this for so long, there is nothing in the world that irks me more than like watching, uh, you know, Tarzan in Africa with the boa constrictor or, you know, uh, stuff like that. But when you have a magazine uh, and they put out an article on a, like say, axolotls, and then the centerfold is a larval tiger salamander, that's like a huge turnoff for me. And so, like you, I'm very, uh, I'm pretty strict about my dislike for misinformation. And again, it's even worse when it's being regurgitated by someone with no experience and all they're doing is parroting something from somewhere else. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's something to be said about practical experience and, uh, it's, it's as valuable and more valuable in many ways, uh, than, you know, some of the uh, empirical data that you'll you'll see because they don't do controlled groups correctly and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, people, I, I don't like the term anecdotal uh, because I think it diminishes the, the level of experience that a lot of people do have that do what we do. And so uh, I, I like the term practical uh, because, you know, a scientist in a lab, maybe an expert on sequencing DNA to, you know, classify a species and its phylogeny, but they don't know how to keep, they don't know the things that we know by keeping and breeding animals and uh, observing their behaviors. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of that too. There are definitely a lot of different disciplines involved, like you said. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I mean, look, I don't purport to be an expert on anything. You know, the, the older I get, right. the more I, when I was young, I thought I knew everything. And now that I'm you know, older, I, I don't know, I don't know anything. So yeah. I'm always hungry for information. I'm always hungry, but I'm always hungry for, for quality information, something that I'm going to learn from. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to get into an online, excuse me, but pissing contest with someone. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I have no use for that. Yeah. Well, that's why I have almost no online presence these days. I just avoid, I avoid it like the plague. <laughs> Welcome to the club. I'm a proud member. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I got kids and I got animals and I got, you know, what else do I need? You know? No, I, I agree. I agree. I, I just, I like to avoid that altogether, but that's why I do yeah. the podcast. You know, if you, if you right. want to hear this, you have to, you know, have to look, seek it out. And I hopefully, uh, I'm providing everyone with, you know, access to some good stuff, but Enough of the shameless self-promotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, getting sick around here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Here's what I what I wanted to get into was the, the Phyla Medusa genus. Now, just yeah. to, just to back up a little bit, 
going back into the early 90s when I worked at that storm that I mentioned, we had one of the phylomedusa species come in. I think it was a bicolor. And I had never seen anything like it before or after for a very long time. And it came in as an import. It was gigantic. And we really didn't know how to take care of it. I mean, I, I was like 15 at the time. And my boss, like I said, was a mammal person. She, she had no idea. And it didn't it didn't do well. I don't think I don't think it lasted a day. I'm sure it was probably really stressed from the import. But mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of the Phylomedusa species as common as commonly represented in the hobby as like the the white tree frogs and the the, the Pac Mans, the Pixies, all that stuff. What like what's keeping them from catching on mainstream in the in the American hobby? I know that they're popular out of out of country, but like what's holding them back? Okay, so mainstream with with all the animals that you see in captivity that are like what I consider a pet, a pet trade staple, right? They all have certain attributes that uh, make them a viable, uh, you know, mainstream pet. What I call a pet, right? And a lot of phylomedusan frogs, whether they're in the genus Phylomedusa or they are, uh, you know, Agalichnes or or uh, Cruziohylas or any of that type of stuff. Um, they do not have attributes that would make them, you know, have widespread uh, interest. I mean, look at like a red-eyed tree frog, right? Like arguably the, you know, one of the most beautiful animals on the planet. And, but when they're sleeping, which is all day when people are awake, they're all folded up and looking green on the backside of the leaf, you know? And so, you know, that, that lends itself uh, to be put in a place that would make people not be interested in it. Plus, you can't really hold them, right? So, and then you look at, and, and the same thing goes for most tree frogs. There are a lot of tree frogs. They are asleep during the day, uh, you know, up all night. You, you don't see them. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are not uh, as hardy as like a Pac-Man or a White's or things like that. I mean, a White's tree frog to me is the only real like tree frog that could be considered a pet. Uh, and, you know, Pac-Mans are just just looking at them physically. They just have attributes that, I mean, and then, you know, when I was a kid, they weren't called Pac-Man frogs. They were called horned frogs and, uh, you know, Argentine horned frogs and Chicoan horned frogs. They weren't called Pac-Mans, you know, so you give them a cool name. And then you look at the sheer volume of production that you get out of a, a pixie or a white or a, uh, what was the other? Oh, a, a Pac-Man. I mean, these are all animals that blow out thousands of eggs in one clutch. So, you know, there's a lot of that, their hardiness. Um, they're like a white street frog. It's a cute fat frog and uh, that tolerates handling. Uh, so, so that's the, that's that. And then, when you look at phylomedusan frogs in general, a lot of times they come in and it's hit or miss. Sometimes you'll, there'll be a great shipment. They come in, they look great. Uh, and then sometimes you'll get on a shipment and they look really bad and they crash. And, you know, with phylomedusans, once they start to go down, there's not much you can do to save them. It's kind of like the old chameleon thing. You know, once the chameleon starts to get sick, there's usually not much you can do. Uh, and you know, then the fact that what it takes to breed them, uh, with some exceptions, like, uh, you know, hypochondrialis is a relatively easy frog to breed. Uh, 
you know, red eyes are extremely easy to breed. Um, like you, bear, I mean, all you have to do to a red eye is spit on it, and the thing wants to go into amplexus and lay eggs. Uh, but a lot of the other ones are a little bit more complicated, and so people aren't set up to to breed them. And then again, like I said, they don't display well. Uh, bicolor will display pretty well because of the way they perch. The Bauchi does the same thing. The hypochondrialis just hides all the time. You almost never see them. Um, and, you know, a lot of the other frogs are the same way. And unfortunately, uh, things like Tomopterna and some of the other stuff, they uh, are not, they just, even us guys that have had them and bred them, they're not a frog species that goes long-term very well. And they just kind of fizzle out. Even if you breed them, the captive breads don't really raise up and breed very well. And they just kind of fade away. So. You know, Valianti, the Razorback, or the White Line Monkey Frog, they come in still, uh, but not many people breed them, uh, just a few of us. And, uh, you know, Hypochondrialis is one of those frogs that is easy to breed, and there's quite a few people that breed them. But nobody wants to give, I mean, they're coming in as a $5, $4 import. And, you know, it's really difficult to, I mean, if you're breeding things like that, uh, it, it, a lot of it falls on the hobby too, because a lot of people in the hobby don't want to pay the extra ten more dollars for a captive bred animal to incentivize the captive breeding aspect of it. And you know they'd much rather just get a wild caught for twenty than pay thirty for a CB. So that that kind of is a part of it too. That's a, there's a it's like a symbiotic relationship. If you, you can breed all these animals all you want, but if people don't want to buy them, then you're going to stop breeding them and vice versa so there's there's just that i was always intrigued how i mean people in asia are kind of have mm -hmm. like a different niche i know that mm -hmm. some of the phylomedusa species are really really popular in some of the asian countries and i don't know that was yeah. really what i was curious about was you know why they are not here well i'll tell you for example like uh waxy monkey right savagi Every single savagi that is produced, that we produce, goes to Asia. Um, last year, I did let some go in the United States, but it was very, very few. I think I sold less than 20 in the U.S. And all the rest went. And the only reason why those got sold in the U.S. is because uh, an export like, kind of went, you know, not right and the, the guy didn't want him and he kind of backed out at the end and I, we gave him his money back and then i released a few to the u.s but outside of that we don't even offer waxies hardly in the united states because people aren't willing to pay um the the price of them and uh, you know when someone in asia is willing to give you know more than the retail price here for their wholesale price like why would i sell them in the u.s it wouldn't make that doesn't make sense that's wild, though. That's you know. The hobby's just more evolved. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that people in the United States are not being exposed and driven. You know, there's, there, the hobby does not drive itself. People are not, you know, like you said, you're the type of guy that has a, a, a thirst for knowledge, right? And I'm the same way, but a lot of people aren't that way. A lot of people, you know, like to be exposed to things by other people. And if there's no people driving the hobby in that way, uh, in guiding the hobby and, 
you know, exposing people to the species, then people aren't going to have interest in them. But I mean, I will say, I can sell every waxy monkey frog produced without any problem, like no problem. So the interest in that species for sure is is there. Uh, the other ones, you know, it's there, but it's moderate. But then again, it, that falls into the same category as most things do. Within a group of animals, let's take the most common, like pet store animals, right? Like, and then we can use things like uh, Philoderma corticale, like mossy frogs, bearded dragons, leopard geckos, uh, you know, all, all these other animals, right? So, and, and same thing with phylum medusa. It, there's a flagship species, right? Like the genus Pagona has what, 10 to 12 members, and yet bearded dragons are the only ones you see in pet stores. Every once in a while, you'll see a rankins. Uh, mossy frogs, with how many species are in the genus uh, Philoderma? I mean, at least 15 to 20, uh, and yet you really only see corticale. And, you know, leopard geckos, there are uh, a number of eublepherin. Uh, geckos and also in the genus Eublepherus. And with Phylomedusa, there's a large number of, of species in the genus. Uh, and yet, things like waxies are the number one most sought after member of the genus Phylomedusa. And, you know, even with, you know, the recent imports of baby bicolor uh, coming out of Peru, you know, those animals are nests that are being collected and they're being morphed out into babies and being shipped up. And a lot of people are having problems with them. But, you know, when you take the genus Phylomedusa, I would say, you know, more or less that Savaji is the most hardy member of the genus. It's also, in a lot of people's opinion, the, the coolest member. Uh, and I think they're pretty awesome, too. Uh, but they perch like a bird. They sit out in the open, they'll bask under a hot light, they're bizarre looking, and they also are easy to keep if you keep them the right way. From the ground up, how would you, how would you keep them successfully? Well, I can just tell you how I do keep them successfully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you a funny story. So, you know, I run Sandfire Dragon Ranch, I, the whole operation is under my control, and I'm 47 years old, and I remember in 1992 getting my very first uh, baby waxy monkey frogs, and um, from Bob Mayu and Philippe uh, had bred them, and I remember the guy's name was John Uhern, and I think. I think his company was United Herpetocultural Network, and he was just like a chopper guy, right? And uh, I had gotten access to these frogs, and I remember getting baby waxy monkey frogs. I mean, this is 92, so I was like, you know, 18, 19 years old, and it was in January, like mid-January in Kansas City. And I remember, you know, because Delta Dash used to be uh, like a cargo type deal, and they'd send it to the, they'd send it to the counter inside the, the airport. And now it's just goes cargo to cargo now. But uh, I remember I went and I went to pick them up and they were not there. And I'm like, well, they're here. Like they're on the plane. And they had been left on the tarmac and it was like 12 degrees outside. 
and they survived. And I, I remember raising those babies in glass gallon pickled jars with like little twigs. And they were the size of not even the size of a quarter. And those things, and I had a hot light on top of each gallon jar. And those things would sit two inches away from the hot light at 120 degrees. And they would just sit there under that light. And, you know, it was just a, a bizarre thing, the way that these frogs live and their tolerance. You know, like right now there are frogs uh, in screen cages outside and it's dipping into the really low 40s at night. And, you know, it's 55, 60 degrees during the day. It's cold and raining and, you know, out here in North San Diego. So, and it's, and for breeding purposes, you know, they need to go through that cycle. But, uh, you know, I remember even back then, you know, just those frogs were amazing. I, I was so stoked to get them from Sandfire Dragon Ranch. So it's kind of surreal that I'm here running things now. Uh, you know, but I've been keeping waxy monkey frogs ever since. So that's uh, close to 30 years. And the, the mistakes that people made in the beginning when they were imported is uh, they would get them, keep them like a red-eyed tree frog, which is a death sentence. And, you know, they need a lot of ventilation. Um, almost want to think of them setting them up more like you would a veiled chameleon. And if you do that, you're going to have success. They need ventilation. I never, and I mean never, ever spray waxy monkey frogs. I don't spray their cage. I don't spray them, ever. And the only time they ever get wet is when they're in a rain chamber. And even then, you can't leave them in the rain chamber for too long, just for a couple, maybe three or four days. And if they haven't bred, you take them out. They cannot take stagnant uh, air, and they can't take high humidity for long. It's amazing because it seems completely counterintuitive in terms of how we've kind of been conditioned to keep amphibians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, you got to look at where they're from in the Chaco in, you know, Paraguay. And it's actually the, the climate uh, and habitat there is really similar to like San Diego County. Um, and so, you know, and just look at the way that they breed, uh, you know, their breeding methods and habits and things of that nature. But, yeah, I mean, they're that and that's how I tell people to set them up. If they don't know, I say, look. Set them up like a veiled chameleon and put a hot light on them of 120 degrees and you're good. Have you ever had any need to incorporate UVB in it at all into their regimen? Well, I'll tell you, in my life, in my experience as a reptile keeper, and I've bred a lot of species, more than I could even probably count. Uh, Even if I counted them, I'd forget a few, but it's well over 400 species. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, just geckos alone, I've bred, you know, 200 plus. And I'm not the big, like, uh, proponent of UV. And I've gotten into this argument with people over the years, and typically it's somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience. And I will tell you, uh, what's more important 
then full spectrum lighting is supplementation. And you, your full spectrum lights aren't going to do anything for your animals if you're not dietary, you know, their dietary needs aren't being maintained and uh, you're not supplementing properly. And I breed most things without full spectrum light. And a lot of people don't realize like your full spectrum lights aren't really full spectrum lights. You know, they're worn out. Uh, and, you know, we've gotten into this. It's kind of like, I hate to like be the guy that, talks about these things and, you know, cause there's a lot of money in full spectrum lighting and the whole preaching the gospel of that. But look at oil, look at changing your oil in your car, right? Like what was the old, the old, like the, the philosophy was you change your oil every, you know, 3000 miles or whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, over the years, people have started to kind of call BS on that. And you've seen, uh, a lot of the auto manufacturers change in their, even in their manuals and things like that. Like, hey, don't change your oil unless it's 5,000 or X amount of thousands. And especially when you started getting into synthetics. But look at who's telling you to change your oil every 2,500 miles. And when you go up and you pull up to get your oil changed, what's it say? Penn's oil, Astral, Quaker State. Like all the oil change places happen to be petroleum companies telling you, hey, you need to change your oil more, you know? And so, you know, full spectrum lighting, and I've kept massive amounts of like Felsuma, day geckos, Euromastics, chameleons. I mean, I've kept them all, bred them all multi-generationally without full spectrum lighting. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's all, it's supplementation. And I have very specific uh, protocols uh, and one of the parts of my protocol is like absolute chaos when it comes to supplementation, because I, I'm all over the place with how I do it. And, you know, I use every supplement you can think of and I mix it up. And, you know, sometimes I, I, uh, you know, we'll, we'll feed one. Sometimes I'll mix all of them together. Sometimes I'll feed, you know, twice a week, I'll use, you know, these three together or whatever. And, I've really gotten into, you know, when I was younger, it was all about keeping your crickets with like, you know, egg laying, you know, crumbles, chicken food. And I don't touch that stuff now. Every insect that is fed to any animal is strictly maintained on a vegetable diet. I don't use any type of chicken food or anything like that. Everything is fed a vegetable diet. And that's for all the lizards, all the frogs, everybody. And I think that's important. I mean, I definitely agree with you. I, I supplement, I mean, especially like with, with, I mean, I'm always biased towards dog frogs, but I mean, fruit flies in and of themselves are not a particularly nutritious yeah. food item. And it's difficult mm -hmm. to offer a wide variety of prey for something that's, you know, microphages. Right. So they eat tiny little things. So you've got... You've got fruit flies, you've got spring, uh, I almost said spring fields, <laughs> spring tails, <laughs> and a couple of bean beetles, a couple of little other odds and ends. Right. But I mean, do you, do you tailor your regimen like per species? Like I know with, in the chameleon world, th there's some issues with the amount of D3 that's in some of the supplements. There'll be like a high D, a, a low D. Do you tailor mm -hmm. it to each species? I do. And, but I, I less, okay. You know, 
when you're dealing with the, the collection that I personally have and with the collection I maintain at Stampfire, when you're, you, you have to go paint everything with a broad brush, right? You cannot get into specific details because you don't have that much time because you have, you have a, a huge collection of different types of, of species, right? And so you have to kind of just uh, hit everybody with the same thing. And so where I do switch up certain things is not so much with the supplementation regimen. It's more what I'm feeding the crickets and what I've really gotten into, uh, like, you know, the vegetables and things like that, right? And so, but what I've really gotten into is playing around with what I feed tadpoles and introducing carotenoids into uh, the diet that I feed tadpoles and other types of uh, supplements. And so I've kind of, played around with that a lot. And I, I'm not going to get into some of my opinions about specific products. Uh, some of the products are made by people I consider friends. But, you know, when you take uh, a frog, like a red-eyed tree frog tadpole or a phylomedusin, like a savagi, right? And people are like, oh, just give it algae wafers or just give it, you know, this type of algae and then throw a... Uh, uh, you know, some spirulina flakes in there, right? That That is not, uh, that's not really a, a, an effective and productive diet. You're, you're not giving enough animal protein. And, and all of these animals, uh, you know, look at where dark frogs have come in their, their breeding protocols and the, their tadpole uh, rearing protocols. You know, at, People would have never used any type of animal protein or pellets or things like that for dark frogs years and years ago. You know, it was all like algae and flakes and this and that, right? And so the same is true with most tree frogs. You know, they're not, you know, they're eating each other. You know, they are eating insects that fall in. They're eating all types of animal matter and protein uh, that, that falls into the water. And so, you know, you watch a, a frog uh, shed its skin in water with tadpoles, and those tadpoles go to that skin like crazy. And uh, so with that, I do, I, you know, and it's hard to do when you have so many species. I, I would like to be able to tailor specific, you know, diets and supplementations and things like that for every species, but it's not feasible. But, uh, you know, what I do, where I do switch it up is in how, I maintain tadpoles and the different tadpoles obviously just have different uh, food requirements. So, you know, it's like phylomedusins typically will eat a little bit less animal protein than things like uh, philoderma or, uh, you know, even whites and some of these other things. But it's gotten to the point now where I'm, I'm really giving phylomedusin frogs a lot of animal protein. Yeah. Every tadpole is definitely unique. I, I, I finished taking a course mm -hmm. And there was one or two species I, for the life of me, I can't, I went through the whole taxonomy of like, oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of genera. But there's this one species that f the tadpoles feed almost exclusively on each other. They cannibalize and on mm -hmm. the excrement of the adults. So they basically, yeah. they literally eat crap and that's, and yeah. that's how they, that's what they need to develop properly. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that old line of thinking, like you just said about just giving them algae and, and whatnot, I tried that. And I didn't have a tremendous amount of luck 
getting tadpoles to develop healthy right. and, and, you know, and vigorous and look good and, you know, be ready right. to go. So I thought and to myself, underdeveloped legs, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. having, I was having tadpoles morph out, but they weren't, they weren't Small, thriving. Smaller. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I thought to myself, all right, I, I'm, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. Maybe I have to stop listening to everybody else. You've got this trio right. here that produces pretty regularly. It's enough for you to be able to kind of tweak it. Well, I threw Beardy Buffet in there. And guess right. what? They grew out like tanks. Yeah. It fouled the water, yeah. and I had to be careful with that. But <laughs> yeah. that, that yeah. addition of the, of the animal protein from the black soldier fly larva, I don't know what it is, but that yeah. got me healthier froglets in that well, first class. There's a lot clutch. of calcium in that. There's a lot of calcium in those, too. Yes, 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 yes. So, yeah. And, and that's something that we don't think about enough with, with tadpoles is, uh, it's like, you know, people put all this energy into the adults and the breeders and then the tadpoles just kind of get fed flake food or this or that. I mean, I quit, you know, I don't feed any exclusive one thing to any tadpole. Like I will use uh, like Rapashi's grub pie in moderation. Uh, and I basically use it as a delivery mechanism for carotenoids. And so uh, because there's not really other than just throwing like super pig into water, which is like red dust, uh, which I don't want to do that. So I, I, ma- I mainly do it for as a delivery mechanism for the carotenoids into the tadpoles. And, um, you know, I mix other things in there too sometimes. It depends. But, uh, you know, on top of using uh, like pellets uh, that I use to feed the caudates, the newts and salamanders, um, and I also will use, I, I culture blackworms. And a lot of tadpoles will eat blackworms. Uh, I'm like almost certain that dart frog tadpoles would eat them for sure. And these things are high protein, high nutrition. And so, you know, and then I'll throw in different types of algae and I'll use the Zoomed uh, spirulina flake, which is a really good flake food, but it's not really good exclusively, you know? Like give them a varied diet and switch things up a lot and I, and you know, I do. That's how I do things with tadpole diet, and that's how I do things with supplementation. And I tell people like, look, different companies get their material from different sources in different ways. And so, you know, just like our body absorbs calcium from milk differently than it absorbs calcium from broccoli, or vitamin C from an orange, and vitamin C from like jalapeno pepper. Uh, I believe that animals, reptiles and amphibians, since that's our focus, uh, I believe that their bodies uh, process different types of calcium in, in different ways and are more absorbed uh, effectively some ways and, than others. And no one can argue these things. I can only speak from my personal practical experience of 30 years and, you know, maintaining you know, at least 800 to 900 different species in my history, if not more. But no one can argue that because there's never been a controlled study of like two decades. And I wish that they would have done this. I wish that 20 years ago there would have been uh, some R&D section of some of the companies that produce the food, the, the supplements that we use. And, but they didn't. And so there is nothing to, 
to reference to see if uh, what's the most effective thing. And if you think about it, you know, the, the history of reptile and amphibian products for the pet trade, you know, it started out with like, well, bird supplements, right? Like I remember back in the day, like Necton Rep was like a supplement that was highly recommended in, for Felsuma and a lot of other, you know, lizards and things like that. I mean, that's a bird supplement. And a lot of uh, calcium was derived from cuttlebone uh, bird supplement, right? So, and it never really evolved after that. So, and then people use, uh, they, they take studies on the human body with, uh, you know, calcium, phosphorus, D3 absorption, uh, things like don't feed your crickets kale because, you know, in human beings, if you eat like 50 pounds of kale in one week, your body will crash. Like that's, you know, it's kind of nonsensical, but that's, that's where a lot of people get their, you know, structure their belief system. And it just doesn't work that way with reptiles and amphibians. Like, you know, one thing I've never been able to come, like, reconcile is, uh, well, if a reptile needs sunlight to synthesize, you know, calcium D3, all that, right? That's an absolute necessity for a reptile, right? That's what everybody says. They say you have to give them UVB. Well, then how is it that like you can raise boa constrictors and colubrids and leopard geckos and knobtail geckos and all these other geckos and lizards and you know blue tongue skinks and python? How is it that these animals can live their whole life in a shoebox or a sweater box and never see light at all, and they're fine? Like why would one? Why would reptiles evolve differently? in their needs. And nobody's ever been able to like make sense of that for me because the studies have never been done. And that's why I say it's more supplementation than anything. It is definitely a dilemma, you know, and I think that, I mean, you've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of species. I mean, I've only dealt with a few, but one of the things that I've learned is that you really can't have a one size fits all approach, especially when it comes to nutrition, because you do off it. That is a valid argument. You know, how can you have a boa in a, you know, basically a, a box with a piece of glass on it and never have any kind of, I mean, does it have to do with the fact that rodents are, you know, a, a, what you would consider a, a whole prey item? Is it, is it dietary? Is it something else? And I feel like trying to compare a boa constrictor with, say, a bearded dragon is almost like comparing a boa constrictor, a boa constrictor with like a domestic cat. It's not. It's it's different, but same. So, I mean, early on, my inclination at the very very beginning of my journey down this rabbit hole that is keeping <laughs> keeping exotics was that that everything was the same, and that's why I failed in the beginning was because I well, number one I didn't know any better, but you, you can't keep a boa constrictor the same as you would keep a green iguana as the same way as you would keep a veiled chameleon. You, you, you can't do that. And not only just the hu basic husbandry, lighting, heating, etc., but also supplementation. Like, you, you're right. It's not something that's been studied, and it's, it's tricky because think about who's going to fund the studies. People who are trying to develop a product, they're going to be the ones that are putting in the research to try and figure, it, figure that out. So it's, it's such a, it's such a, you know, confusing topic because there's so many different angles on it. 
Well, right. And, you know, a company, you know, uh, just all the companies, I don't want to name a specific company, you know, but all the companies that make supplements for reptiles and amphibians, like, come on, they cannot make a tailored to suit every species supplement. That's just, it's not possible. It's not feasible, you know? And so much in the same way that I have to maintain my collection uh, in a certain way, and I have to kind of just supplement in a manner that I believe, you know, no one in the collection is, uh, you know, suffering uh, for a loss of its dietary needs. But I believe that there are definitely things that could be figured out over the years, you know, which like it's, this hobby is, is still in its infancy. Like we're just now starting to get, you know, our footing uh, with, you know, a lot of the ethics and things that have come into play uh, in the last, you know, five years even. So, you know, where this hobby is going to be in 20 years from now and what we will know, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, look at where we've, we've come for 20 years. But uh, I think the supplementation and dietary needs and uh, enrichment and all that stuff are going are gonna, to, you know, evolve quite a bit. And mostly because captive breeding uh, is, has become such a normal thing now where it really wasn't 20 years ago. So we're going to learn a lot more just by observing the animals and the people that are breeding them and starting to breed more obscure rare things, they're going to, you know, figure out things that you couldn't find out from an animal by observing it in the field or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's, um, we cannot control the supplements that we, we don't even know if the supplements, how absorbed they are. I mean, look at people taking vitamins. I mean, half of the vitamins we take, you know, get pissed out of our body. So we don't really know what the absorption rates are of these things. Um, and even if they did a study on something that was a common animal, like a bearded dragon, now how does that apply to a mantella? We don't really know. But what we can control, what we can control is we can control what we feed our insects and we can control what we feed our mice. Like I do not, I do feed obviously lap lock to the mice that are bred to feed the snakes. But I also, before feeding, uh, I give the mice a lot of different other things. I'll give them carrots, I'll give them, um, you know, uh, different vegetables, things of that nature. Uh, I remember in school, I must've been in middle school. I wasn't in high school. I might've even been in elementary school. And we did a study in, a, in our class for a science project on raising rats, uh, which to this day still creep me out. <laughs> but I remember having two control groups of rats and one of them was fed, you know, they were fed, you know, vegetables and, you know, high quality food. And the other ones were fed like just garbage, you know, Twinkies and things of that nature. And that made a big impact on me and probably helped subconsciously influence me and in how I look at at keeping, you know, feeder items that are fed. Because, you know, you, you are what you eat. And that's true of reptiles, too. So, you know, delivering that nutrition in the gut of a food item is, is as important uh, as supplementation is. I, I, I'm a big proponent of that. That and the fact that I, not just gut loading, but I also like to offer 
a variety of prey items. So mm-hmm. my default is I have my dubia colony, which has anyone who's listened to this podcast from the beginning knows that I had a problem over the summer because I fed so much off because it was, you know, with the COVID restrictions here in New York, there was a lot of stuff that was mm-hmm. closed. So I kind of went to the mattresses on that, but now my colony is back. So a lot of members of my collection get fed almost exclusively dubious, but I like to throw in other things as well. You know, I'll get banded crickets. Um, right now I'm working with some, uh, some silkworms and just offering the variety is at least somewhat closer because, I mean, if you think about an animal's right. natural diet, it's so varied. You're never, I mean, imagine, like, think about yeah. human diets, you know? Yeah. Think about all the crazy stuff that we eat on a, in the course of a year. Yeah. Right. Think of, how many, think of how many spiders are eaten annually by dark frogs in the wild. Yeah, yeah. And every other bizarre little microscopic insect, that, you know, that we don't feed, you know? So, yeah, I'm right there with you. It was, I'll tell you what's funny. You, you brought something up about silkworms, and it's kind of funny to see the resurgence coming back. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, that was like the thing, man. Like it was all about field sweeping for insects and, um, you know, silkworms and, you know, all these other prey items. And, you know, then we got stuck in crickets and mealworms, you know, and then, uh, and mealworms get a bad rap. I mean, mealworms are a really good food item. And in fact, if people do the research on gut contents of uh, desert-dwelling uh, animals, you will see tenebrionid beetles and their larvae like listed over and over and over and over again. Uh, but, you know, it's also like if you're not feeding them anything, you're just giving them the sawdust that they come in, you know, it's like bran or whatever. But, you know, that's, of course, that's not nutritional. That's not adequate. But so it's good to see people getting back into silkworms. It's good to see things like, you know, soldier fly larvae and things like that being available. And, you know, it's always funny when people say, oh, well, don't feed too many waxworms or you're like, you shouldn't feed too many of anything. You should definitely vary your diet as much as you possibly can. Yeah, that's another thing that I think is just kind of a function of you know, parroted information. I, I think that people kind mm-hmm. of have this, no one likes to be the first person to make the leap off the ledge. And I feel like people have mm-hmm. this comfort zone where, well, this is, this is the information that's been out there for years. This has to be the way, there has to be the way it goes. I mean, I heard about like superworms chewing their way out of another, I, I mean, it's not true. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. But that's, that's still categorically false, uh, you know, information that I've heard for years too. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I mean, oh, God, I could think of all, all sorts of crazy stuff off the top of my head. I don't want to g- get into that, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like you said, as the hobby advances, these are things that people are coming to terms with is the fact that, you know, just it's it's not necessarily right to throw half a dozen crickets into a an enclosure and expect that animal to get the full benefit of the nutritional content of them without varying it, without gut loading, and without supplementing. Right. No. Well, and that's what people do. They just go get a couple dozen crickets from the pet store and then they throw them into their animal. Nothing in between. I always laugh when they ask me, um, I like to order banded crickets because they live forever. But when I can't have them, like right now it's about eight degrees here. So I'm not going to get crickets shipped to my house. But 
I'll go to the local store and they're like, oh, do you want calcium? I'm like, no. <laughs> I have my right, own stuff. Dust it for you. Yeah. They'll dust it for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, wait, wait. So they can just, they can just kind of groom themselves and get it off of them by the time I get home. It, no, that's okay. That's okay. But I don't know. Everyone has to start somewhere. Now, right. as far as Sandfire goes, a lot of the supplementation, pro, I mean, I know that you're kind of taking things over now, but going back mm -hmm. when, when, when Bob was there, a lot of the supplementation protocols were kind of developed there, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, you have like Philippe and Rapashi and all these guys that were a part of Stampfire, uh, you know, years ago. But yeah, I mean, I, uh, Alan was developing his whole, uh, you know, superfoods thing while he was at Stampfire and selling it through T-Rex. And that's how it was being sent to uh, like Petco and PetSmart. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff was, was kind of pioneered by these guys and, you know, even Philippe for, uh, you know, for, for all he's done for the hobby, especially back in the day, uh, you know, he was always pushing the supplement thing. He was always pushing, uh, you know, gut loading and he was always pushing field sweepings and things like that, you know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff was, uh, but again, you know, we've evolved. We've evolved, you know, and these guys, they start this stuff, they pioneer it, and then other people improve on it, just like we improved on the Model T, and now we have Teslas. So, you know, who knows where, like I said, we're just starting to really get a concept of the, the nutritional needs uh, of reptiles and amphibians in, in captivity. And, I mean, look, <laughs> I mean, it's only been in the last few years that they've really had a big push in dog food. And how many years and decades have dogs been a, uh, you know, a pet in a household? So, I mean, even dogs' nutritional uh, needs are still probably not being met to their optimal, you know, levels. So, you know, and of course, there's many schools of thoughts on that too. But uh, so, you know, the reptile thing has a long ways to go. That's for sure. Yeah, and the other thing to remember is dogs is it, it's one species. It's Canis familiaris. That's it's one species. Yeah. Whereas with the rep, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, I mean, you're dealing with realistically thousands and thousands of different species that are not. It, it's so easy to look at a dog and say, "Oh, well, you know, that's a dog. It's related to a wolf." Like, well, yeah, they're similar, but you know, like a, a Phylomedusa bicolor is not in this, you know, not nearly close to say like a fire belly toad. You know what I mean? It, it's like, you're not, you're, you're not comparing apples with apples. It's apples and oranges. Right. And, and that's why you have to develop a protocol unless you work with one species. That's why you have to develop a protocol that kind of like hits everybody to the maximum benefit individually, you know, mm. while hitting the whole group as a whole. And that's kind of why I mix up my supplements the way that I do. It would definitely make for an interesting study. I, I would, I'm, I would love to read that. I, I've read a, I mean, I found a couple. It would of be more. a decades-long study that would be ever evolving. But if they could just do something with the like, take five pet pet trade like staple species: bearded dragon, you know, leopard gecko, and like a snake, you know, stuff like that. If they would just take those and and start some different control groups, like, you know, with, with UV lighting, with no UV lighting, with supplement, with no supplement, with gut loading, no gut loading, you know, and things like that, just to start, 
and then you know change the study. But but you you would have to to you know observe them over multiple generations. Also, you know, because you know I want to see what their great grandbabies are doing. It would it would definitely be interesting. I mean, I know in the you know the tarantula world. I'd followed kind of a, a a post from a couple of people who who were you know in the hobby a long long time had a lot of experience and they did an experiment with crickets and mealworms to see which was the better feeder and they started I think they started off some spiderlings on crickets and they started some spiderlings off on mealworms and essentially fed them each that one prey item for their entire lives and if I recall correctly, I think it was the the ones that were fed on the mealworms that developed faster and, and larger and were just generally more healthy. So you never can tell, you know, and I don't know. Well, I mean, look, at, mealworms get a bad rap, but every single commercial leopard gecko breeder or large-scale leopard gecko breeder in the world feeds exclusively mealworms. Like, that's just a fact. I mean, there's no, that's that's just an undeniable fact. So... You know, I'm not saying mealworms are for everybody. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to feed a mantella or a darfrog a mealworm. Although, I think like fresh baby, you know, uh, you know, normal common mealworms. I think dart frogs would eat them up all day long. I could see my my phyllobates, the terribilis. I could see. I mean, they'll eat anything. Yeah, and they're so small, and uh, you know, in that in that regard, it might be an effective way to introduce. Uh, you know, good gut content nutrition to the frogs. Yeah, I mean, you know, phyla babies will eat. <laughs> yeah, they'll eat my they're finger. The, they're, yeah, they're the, yeah, they, you know, it's not like Cerebellus can eat such a large prey item compared to other dart frog species of that size. So they're good in that regard for sure. Yeah, it's that, it's wild, it's wild watching them eat. You know, one thing before we wrap up, and I, I, I know we kind of talk before, I mean, just everybody out there, you know, whenever I have someone on the show, we kind of just talk for about a half an hour or so before we start. But um, this just kind of came into my mind now. Now, you've worked with, with hundreds of species. Do you have an, an opinion on morphs? Meaning a lot of the more common species, they have, you know, there's morphs available. I was just curious what your, what your opinion is. My opinion is I think morphs are great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night, folks. And, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. This is why. And uh, if you were looking at it through the lens of a, a purity thing, right? So we don't create morphs. Okay. I mean, when you start getting into combinations of morphs, okay, we we do manipulate that. Okay, like a lot of the ball python, corn snake, that kind of stuff, right? But we don't create mutations. You do not have the ability. Well. I shouldn't say that because there's some genetic work being done in labs. But for the most part, as an individual, I cannot make a mutation. I, it's a naturally occurring thing. All we do as hobbyists is exploit the mutation and recreate it. And when you're talking, I mean, it's like a live and let live to each his own personal preference thing, right? Like, I get that some people don't like them, but to say it's unnatural is, is just factually untrue because it is natural. Albinos are naturals. We don't make them. We may recreate them, but we don't, we can't take a, uh, we can't create an albino out of nothing. So, and everybody, I'll tell you, everybody's against morphs until they produce the first morph of something and then they're all about them, you know? 
and so as long as you're not going to use that gene pool to reintroduce species into the wild, which you wouldn't be able to do anyway, because if you're dealing with uh, any type of reintroduction uh, uh, project or any SSP, like with the AZA, like a species survival plans, things like that, you, your animals genetically would be too polluted to be used in those reintroduction uh, programs anyway. So it really doesn't matter. So purely from the aspect of the fact that these animals are captive bred animals, being kept in captivity, being sold to other people who are never going to introduce them into a native population, I don't see the big deal. Now, now that being said, I have, uh, I breed like other than emerald tree boas and barons, you know, blue barons racers and some uh, Asian rat snakes and some other stuff. I have a large collection of Western hognose snakes. And I have a lot of different mutations of those. And so, I mean, I'd be a hypocrite if I said I didn't think some of them were freaking awesome. And um, I also produced the first leucistic Spanish rib noose in the world uh, in 2007. I produced also the first uh, azanthic giant day geckos, the first recessive azanthic all blue giant day geckos. I produced those. So there's been some, and, and with axolotls, I've produced multiple new mutations and color forms. So, you know, I'm not a hypocrite and I, I do think mutations are cool. Uh, however, it's all about, uh, you know, being ethical in, in regards to those things, you know, and that's, that's the important thing uh, is that people do things ethically when it comes to mutations, you know, maintaining quality animals, uh, and breeding for quality and not just to exploit the mutation to make money so that other things suffer. I, I agree. I mean, I, I have my own personal, I, I kind of flip flop back and forth. I yeah. try to find more of an appreciation. I mean, if I go, okay. If I look at it this through this lens, if I went back in a time machine to when I was younger, and this is before any of these morphs were available before even most of these species were even available in the hobby and I saw something in a book, I'd say, wow, that's incredible. I would love to see that in front of me. And then I do, you know, I have different species that I've, I've had different morphs of. I mean, I, I never was never really too crazy with, with morphs, but, and, you know, looking at the animal, I think, wow, I'm like, it's, it's great. Like I've got it in front of me. It's, it's beautiful. I can really appreciate it. And then I think to myself, well, now I want one that's a different color. You know, and it's, it, I don't know what it is. It's just, I've tried to develop more of an appreciation for like the wild types, like my, you know, my, my bearded dragon. I, I got it, I got him quite a few years ago. And, you know, the person who was selling said, well, you know, do you want to see any of the more, any of the morphs? So I was like, nah, I was like, I kind of, you know, I remember seeing them in a book when I was a kid. And to me, this is it. But, you know, everybody has their own, you know, has their own takes on it and whatnot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't dislike morphs. I, I do. I mean, I have. I, I like both. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I like, I like both, but like, come on. I mean, I look at things like, let's take, like I say, my favorite dark frog. There's albino reticulatus. I mean, that's kind of a cool animal. Uh, it's hard not to like for a moment appreciate it because it's not something that is man-made. We didn't create it. I mean, it's a naturally occurring thing. And uh, while most albinos like a frog, there's, so many times where somebody pops up on a forum, oh, I just found this albino salamander, or I just found this albino toad, or, I, you know, it looked like the first albino retic was like, you know, a large animal, and the first albino ball, uh, Burmese pythons were, you know, was a large animal. I mean, they were not animals that 
that didn't survive, you know, the juvenile phase or stage. So, you know, albinos do exist and they do live. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, whether or not it's okay to exploit them, I don't know. I mean, as captive breeders, we're, we're not really conserving much. Uh, you know, that old phrase of like conservation through captive breeding, like I don't really agree with that because you're not really conserving anything. Uh, you're just keeping animals in glass cubes. And, you know, until they, which we can, that's a whole nother episode to, to open up this, you know, can of worms about what's going to happen with the amphibian hobby if uh, people don't start doing certain things now. Uh, they're, we're going to lose the hobby because the government's going to shut it down because of different fungus. But, uh, you know, outside of that, like, you know, we're, unless you're actively involved in an in-situ or ex-situ breeding program uh, for conservation purposes, you're not really conserving anything. And, you know, for some things, it, it's nice that, you know, you're breeding them and taking the strain off of wild populations and the collection of them. Um, but even then, we're not doing that much not not anything that's significant yeah it's like you said it's it's a whole other rabbit hole that you could get and we could we could talk it's funny because i i have that 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 kind of like debate with with every, not i won't say debate debate but discussion with almost every guest i've had on when we get to that term you know conservation well what does it mean what relationship does the hobby have in terms of conservation everyone has different ideas i, I mean i i deal with you know, I, I have hobbyists on the show. I have breeders on the show. I have, you know, conservationists. I have scientists. I have people involved with charities. I have everybody because everybody's got something to say. But you're right. If we don't make some very dramatic changes, we're we're going to lose our right to keep these things in captivity. Right. Well, you know, with conservation, there's a difference between conservation and preservation. Like if if you're breeding animals in captivity and there's nowhere for them to live in the world because their habitat is destroyed, is that really conservation? Like if they're not living in the wild, like let's say like take a rhino, right? I won't even go down the list of reptiles and amphibians, but let's just take like a rhinoceros, right? If the only 10 living rhinos of this species or, you know, are in captivity, is that really conservation if they're not in the wild? You know, that's that's preser that's preserving a species. But, you know, I, my my idea of conservation is that there has to be viable populations in the wild. And, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm not saying it's not a good idea to breed animals. I breed animals and I do it for that reason. But I also don't I don't have myself in, of, of the mindset that I'm doing beneficial things for the species by breeding them in captivity. And I'm not saying that there's no benefit to breeding them in captivity. But you have things like waxy monkey frogs, right? Well, if they weren't being bred in captivity, they wouldn't even be in captivity because exports don't come in. So are you taking the strain off of wild populations by, by captive breeding them? Mm, no, because the reason why they're not being exported is not because of the captive breeding aspect. It's because the country doesn't allow exports. So... If they allowed exports, uh, waxies would be all over the place and captive breeding them wouldn't mean much. You know, I mean, I'd still be able to sell them and I'd still breed them, but, you know, th there would be others available. And uh, so it, that's a lot of uh, uh, 
you know, like you said, there's it's it's a lot to go through, and there's a lot of nuance involved with uh, all of that, and there's a lot of difference of opinion. So all I try to do is do things the most in with what I believe is the most ethical way to do them for myself and for the species and for the hobby, you know. And I just try to live by that rule the best I can. No, I agree. I agree. Now, I mean, before we, we end, though, is there anything that you wanted to mention? I mean, I know you're, you're, you're kind of the head of operations at Sandfire now. Do you want to kind of just tell the listeners a little bit about that before we wrap up? Uh, about how I came here or just, like no, just what goes on here? Just about what, what projects you're working on now and if anybody wanted to um, you know, get in contact with you. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So, I was in a position where he needed help. And I've known Bob for decades. And I just kind of, uh, the way my life worked and how everything kind of played out, I wound up in San Diego from Kansas City. And so I pro bono offered to help him. And, you know, he's getting up there. And so in the process of doing that, I've made a lot of changes. Uh, I've definitely made the facility more updated. And so... I've also kind of brought my own flavor to it, kind of like when a chef comes into a restaurant, he brings his, his, his you know, stuff with him. And so a lot of the species that were being maintained here weren't really, there was no real point in maintaining them. So there's obviously always going to be waxies. There's always going to be, you know, mutations of white tree frogs and morphs of white tree um, And some other things. Like, for example, we don't really breed bearded dragons. Like bearded dragons are out. And so, uh, but Bob's always been a frog guy anyway. If people don't know that. He was never really a big bearded dragon guy. He's a frog guy. He's always been a frog guy at his core. So, and then uh, he, you know, I've brought uh, a lot of new salamander species here. So the focus of Sandfire these days now is uh, obscure frogs, tree frogs mostly. Um, and obscure lizards, uh, rare obscure lizards, and some common stuff that I like. It's that's obscure. There's definitely no leopard geckos. Not that there's anything wrong with those. Uh, and then really uh, kind of expanded the Newton salamander stuff. Like I put a whole building here that's on an air system that only has Newton salamanders in it. Got that. That's wow. That must be pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, nuisance salamanders are something I've always done, and you know, ever since I was a kid. But I've been breeding them, you know, for thirty years. So, uh, it's you know, they're they have their they're they're very interesting animals if people take the time to look at them. So, I know they've been a favorite of mine for a long time. But that's that's a whole other whole other show. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But that's that's kind of the the change and the evolution and where Sandfire's headed. Sandfire's definitely not a large-scale wholesale producing company. There's no more sales to box stores, no Petco, no PetSmart, uh, no large, uh, you know, scale breeding of wholesale stuff. Uh, of course, with certain things like white street frogs, you can't help but you have to wholesale some of that stuff because they produce such huge numbers just in one clutch. Um, and certain things like Spanish ribbons that do the same thing. But for, but for the, you know, for the most part, it's going to be small numbers 
of more obscure species. Cool. Well, listen, Jay, I want to thank you so much. It's been very illuminating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so cool. So, I mean, if anybody, it's, was it's, it's, uh, it's samfireranch.com. I forgot what the website was. Well, Sanfire Dragon Ranch or, you know, really most stuff is Instagram and, uh, Facebook, but if you look up Sanfire Dragon Ranch or Instagram is Sanfire Official, uh, you'll find us. Cool. Cool. All right, everyone. I want to thank Jay for giving us his insights tonight. Hope everyone enjoyed this one. Catch up with you guys again soon.